Hello, Satan, and welcome to <laughs> Cannabis Nation, where we help guide you through the wonderful and complex world of cannabis by shedding light on your most burning questions and dankest desires. I'm Nick. And I'm Susan. And this is episode 25. Wow, can you believe that we it's made it? It's come alive! Oh, episode 25! Yeah. So we wanted to do another Culture Pot series episode, and we decided to talk about everyone's favorite. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, or or music. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. It started but that where way. where did it start? Yeah, it started yeah. With sex, drugs, and rock for all for all of us. We were like, woo. Yes, yes, exactly. Exciting. So before we begin, we thought it was worth noting a brief explanation into our dive into this new culture pot series we call the Sound of Smoke mm-hmm. in its first episode. That's right, folks. We have a series within a series now. <laughs> We have a podcast with a series and a series in the series with an episode in that series of the series of the podcast. Just, just happened. Oh, my God. Well, we didn't mean to make it a Halloween episode, but the more oh. we dove into the history of contemporary Jeez. American music and cannabis's influence therein, things got kind of murky, yeah. and then they got dark, and yeah. then it just got like scary. Tur- took a turn. Right into a legacy of weird and creepy... <laughs> A twist of irony, yeah. Um, So without further ado, here is some uh, shit that just might scare you. Yeah. Talk about your darkest questions and dankest desires. Indeed. Indeed. Just like any scary story, it opens with two inquisitive young innocent kids. That's Nick and I. Oh, it's us. Oh my gosh. (laughs) We're in the story? Fun. What joy we experienced when we started to realize that not only rock and roll had culture with, that included cannabis, but pretty much all music genres did. Okay, so we decided to narrow our search down to a contemporary American music theme, mm-hmm. okay? But then we came to the conclusion that there's a lot of that, a lot of that there there. And we had more than one episode in our new Culture Pot series series. Mm-hmm. Even more joyous, again, where to start? <laughs> well, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Well, we followed that line all the way to the beginning, and what we found was the blues. So yeah. we're going to start with the blues. Yeah. And that is because the blues is the mother and father of swing, jazz, R&B, country, rockabilly, rock and roll, uh, reggae, types of metal, disco, rap, funk, punk rock, hip-hop, grunge, and some we've probably forgotten or not even aware of at this point yet. Totally! Um, And a lot of those are American inventions. Yes! So, all of these music genres have the blues as their DNA base and footprint, and yeah. Reefer, as some of them sang, a companion for a lot of musicians and people who <sighs> listened, past, present, and definitely future. <laughs> If yeah. I have anything to say about yeah. it. <laughs> so where did the blues come from and how did it influence so many mm. seemingly different musical genres? And how did cannabis or reefer, as it was referred to at the time, mm-hmm. make the scene? Good questions. Well, 
things took a turn. Yeah. A dark turn. Mm-hmm. And then an even darker turn. And then a frightful horror scenes that included, but were not limited to, the suffering of captured and long-term generationally enslaved people, vices of all manner and subsequent consequences, and, well, devil's music. Yep. Okay. It was like our balloon got popped and the wind was let out of our beautiful hemp sails. It took a turn to a place we had not anticipated nor are necessarily comfortable with, like any horror show does. Nonetheless, whether or not we are comfortable with it, the history of slavery is an important factor in not only the development of the music itself as a living art form, but also in the cultivation and culture of cannabis and its subsequent demonization. Excuse me. Demonaliz- demonal Nick? Demonization. Thank you. So with that in mind, here are the facts. We will try our best to explain them as succinctly as possible. So here's for the murky part. Well, it was originally grown as hemp in this country, uh, but there is some evidence to suggest long before its induction into the American pharmacopoeia in 1851, cannabis had been brought to the Americas via the slave trade for its psychoactive effects by the enslaved populations themselves. There's also an archaeological trail of evidence up the African continent of the development and evolution of cannabis pipes used for uh, consuming the plant for its psychotropic effects. Uh, Alvaro Rubim de Pino wrote Social and Medical Aspects of the Use of Cannabis in Brazil. It states that slaves in 1549, largely from Angola, brought cannabis seeds to the northeast Brazilian sugar plantations at which they were enslaved. Slave owners encouraged slaves to plant marijuana in the sugar cane fields so that during their downtime they would tender their personal crop. The belief was this would contribute to the prod- productivity of the workers by reducing their periods of inactivity, then to believed to promote laziness. <laughs> so yeah, just like trying to keep them from leaving the fields yeah. at all, because if you no. leave the fields, you're going to get lazy. No. But smoke your keep your weed keep your all weed. here exactly, which is just hilarious here, at like the sleep. modern uh, connotation of laziness with yeah. weed. They're like, oh no, have your uh, weed, no. just don't leave the don't fields. don't leave the fields. Just okay. keep working, just keep working, just keep working. Oh gosh, okay, okay. Um, well, ent- etymologists are not entirely clear on how the term reefer became so closely linked to cannabis. But some, including the Oxford English Dictionary, claim it's derived from the Spanish word for marijuana, grifa. Uh, Others claim it was adopted from sailor slang in sailing to reef is Mm -hmm. to roll up the sail, similar to how you'd roll up a joint. Mm -hmm. And a reefer is a sailor who does the rolling. I was a reefer as a child. You were a reefer. Yeah, yeah. I bet you were. I bet you were a great reefer. I was. My dad said, you have those little hands. You got those little hands. You got those little hands. Great for rolling joints. (laughs) Well, cannabis use in medicine was sporadic and ill-defined. By the early 1900s, the U.S. government began experimenting with domestic production of certain imported drugs, including cannabis. Mm -hmm. Many of these agricultural experiments cropped up in the South, Mm -hmm. where the soil and climate were thought to be ideal for drug cultivation. (laughs) Uh, Hot and steamy, baby. Yeah, baby. Yep, lots of moisture. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, plants and music. Yep. (laughs) Seems to work. Seems to work. Well, little information is available on the subject, 
but we would be remiss not to mention mm. that most, if not all, labor regarding field or agricultural work of any yeah. kind at that place and time was performed by sharecroppers, who were, for the most part, America's relatively recently emancipated Afro-American slaves and their descendants. Mm -hmm. So here comes the dark shit. Yeah, yeah. Research proves that the base of blues was developed by Afro-American slaves working out in the fields as a call and response method of communication of location and or task in the field, and in some cases, clandestine affairs. Clandestine affairs? Yeah, like, um, one of the things was, when it was referred to a woman, that I'm going to leave that woman. They were talking actually about the slave holder or, or their oh, boss. Interesting. Right. Yeah. It's important to mention that many tribes in Africa used the drums to communicate over distances. Slaveholders knew that tribes in Africa communicated to each other via the drum, especially during times of war. So out of fear, they banned the slaves from using the drums. Oh, wow. Okay. This is not to say that tribes in Africa didn't play string and or wood or wind instruments, but a ton of archaeological archaeological evidence suggests that, you know, they had those. But in the work and toil of the fields, you're not going to bring those instruments with you. So they were primarily used in the home during religious services and other few and far between social events. And they also had a huge influence on the development of the blues. Yeah. Many slaveholders and landholders uh, employed at free, if you want to call them that, Scott, Irish, and English sharecroppers, remember those were the first people to settle, you know, New England and such as well, uh, as well, whose melodic string guitar influence played another key component in what is the blues, all right? Yeah. So some say that is why drums were not used in the early development of the blues. If you know, like I say, the call and response is either sung, slapped, slid, spanked, banged, or tapped, on a string and or wood or um, uh, a wind instrument. But mostly it's the guitar that matters in the blues. That certainly is true. Yeah. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the first appearance of the blues is usually dated after the Emancipation Act of 1863, between the mm -hmm. 1860s and 1890s, mm -hmm. a period that coincides with post-emancipation and later the establishment of juke joints huh. as places where blacks went to listen to music, dance, and or gamble after a hard day's work. Mm -hmm. The period corresponds to the transition from slavery to sharecropping, small-scale huh. agricultural production, and the expansion of railroads in the southern United States. Mm -hmm. Several scholars characterize the development of the blues in the early 1900s as a move from group performance to totally. individualized performance. Totally. They argue that the development of the blues is associated with the newly acquired freedom of the enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Wikipedia. Thanks, <laughs> also, quick note, guys, if you use Wikipedia at all, please give them some money. Totally. It's an incredible free ad-free service. They yeah. not only does it provide a lot of good information, but links to uh, the yeah. sources and like we use it so much. Oh just, my gosh! Just as the a, links that it a jumping out point. So yeah. great, you guys. Yeah. So please, totally. if you use it, give them some money. You don't so even need to get them a lot; just a couple of bucks. Thanks, Wick. Thanks, Wick. Okay. 
With freedom comes movement, and with movement comes exchange of ideas and commodities. <laughs> and those include music, sex, and drugs. Wow. <laughs> I happen to like all three of those I things. I happen to like all those things. Wonderful. Okay. All right. So blues musicians played for sharecroppers sometimes in the fields to ease their toils, but mostly on city streets and in the jukes, because that's where the money was. The best and oldest and most well known of the Mississippi of the blues is the Mississippi Delta blues. This hot, steamy region of the nation gave birth to the mother of all music genres popular in the world today. Founded in Africa, forged in the muddy, heated cruelty of the Mississippi Delta, and then transformed over time and space to all that it has become. Thank you. The origins of the juke joints may be the community rooms that were occasionally built on plantations to provide a place for black people to socialize during slavery. The practice spread to the work camps such as sawmills, turpentine, excuse me, turpentine camps, and lumber companies in the early 20th century, which built barrel houses and choke houses to be used for drinking and gambling. Now, barrel houses is where they built barrels. Choke houses is where they made coal. Neither one of these places is where you wanted to be. No, no, that, that yeah, doesn't I mean, sound like good places. No, but that's where the opportunity yeah. for these places, you know. Well, to, especially already in the hot and humid south yeah. here in two places. I mean, yeah. both barrel making and, of course, <laughs> coal. coal. Making. Lots of heat. Yellow. Lots of heat yeah, involved. But these happen to be the wellspring, right? Yeah. So... Although uncommon in populated areas, such places were often seen as necessary to attract workers to sparsely populated areas, lacking bars and other social outlets. Jukes were where people went to forget their woes and suffering. That's right. We all need it. The jukes were where the money was at. They ate, drank, danced, gambled, fought, fucked, smoked tobacco and reefer as the blues musicians played sometimes till the break of day. The most famous of these players was the legendary Robert Johnson, who is said to have sold his soul to the devil at the crossroad. Now, of course, there were other blues players, but none like Robert. His talent came somewhere out of nowhere. Hmm. And now the dark, just darn right scary into legacy of weird and creepy with a twist of irony. <laughs> So we're going to tell you the story of Robert Johnson, who is said to have sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads in order to be a better guitar player. Yep. You see, Robert started out as a not-so-good guitar player. Not so good. He fell in love, he got married, and promised to never play the devil's music again. His wife went to her grandmother's house by train to have the ba baby, and Robert went by foot, mm -hmm. using this trip to earn a little extra scratch mm -hmm. by doing what? Playing, Playing the, the blues. blues. That devil's music. That devil's music. His wife and child then died in childbirth before he got there, <laughs> and the family blamed their deaths on Robert for playing that devil's music. Yeah. So he goes back to the Delta to try and make a living off playing music. Because he's like, screw it. Yeah, he's like, I lost everything pretty much to screw it. Might it. as well keep losing. Uh, as he was never a good sharecropper and never wanted to be no. a sharecropper. And uh, let me just interrupt you really quick. Yeah. His stepfather used to beat him, apparently, because Robert had these 
long fingers and he didn't and he wanted to play guitar because he mm-hmm. saw sharecropping as like a nowhere zone. It was really the only thing that black people had after emancipation mm-hmm. and their subsequent generations, right? Yeah. And he said, I don't want to do this. And so he didn't want to be a sharecropper. So it's interesting he fell in love and said, Okay, I'm gonna because he would play for sharecroppers. Yeah. And his stepfather used to beat him, but he couldn't get him worked in the field. But he fell in love and said, I'm going to give up this devil music. And then his wife died, right? This yep. whole thing. So, so that that's, just made him double down yeah, and just double down. go right back into it. Exactly. Well, he was just a mediocre player, yeah. never earning more than nickels and dimes. <laughs> yeah. You would think that, yeah, but what? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You see, the real money was at the Jukes. Mm-hmm. And Robert would try to play between other musicians' sets. Yeah. You know, they would say, What's that Robert up to now? Bothering everyone with his scratching. (laughs) He called his guitar playing scratching because it was so bad. Bad. Yeah. Sun House, one of the owners of the the Jukes, used to say, Robert, quit bothering everybody with that scratching. Quit bothering everybody (laughs) with your scratching. Yeah. Well, then one day he disappears from the Delta region to go back to home to Clarksdale. Legend has it that Johnson took his guitar to the crossroads of highways 49 and 61 in Clarksdale, Mississippi, where the devil restrung and tuned his instrument in exchange for his soul. To add to the legend, he and his mentor, who was in Clarksdale, Ike Zimmerman, uh-huh. would practice playing in a graveyard. But not because it was creepy. No. Ike would just say, you won't bother none of these people playing here with your scratching. You can't bother the dead with your shitty guitar playing, basically, is what he's saying. Exactly. So he returned to the Delta with a formidable technique and mastery of the blues. There are also references in his songs to hoodoo verbiage of the time. Mm-hmm. We need to speak to the size of Robert's hands in relation to his playing six strings. As you were saying earlier, he had massive hands. Yeah. And how hubris and pussy killed him, making him the first contemporary member of the famous Died at 27 Club. Yeah. Johnson's final words were, I pray that my Redeemer will come and take me from my grave. Now, speaking about the size of the hands, uh, again, you know, Keith Richards said, Mm-hmm. You know, it's like listening to three. We takes three of us guitar players to make the sound that oh, that he did with one guitar. So yeah. what? Okay, where did the hubris and pussy come into the play? Okay, so after okay, so again, he falls in love with another girl whose family is very Christian, and um, they deny the relationship. Okay, so yeah. that's when he just. Again, he didn't give it up, but he was like, "I want to marry this woman," and they were like, "Nope." And he was like, screw it. I'm just going to be a poon hound. So he's playing a juke and he's screwing the owner's wife of the juke. And one night he apparently, uh, you know, he made some comment about the woman in front of everybody. So, you know, disrespecting the juke owner and his wife on stage. So. The guy brings him up, so he orders a bottle of whiskey, and it's given to him uncorked. And it's important to note that in these jukes, you were not to get a bottle opened, that it was important to get a closed bottle. Mm-hmm. So one of his friends or contemporaries knocks the bottle out of the hand because it's out of his hand because it's opened. And Robert got really mad at him and said, you know, the guy said, hey, it's open. And the guy said, you don't, Robert said, you don't knock a $7 bottle uh, 
whiskey out of some, a man's hand, which $7 back in the day was a lot of money. Yeah. So he could he drinks it, and then he like all of a sudden he's going downhill. So they the same night. So they the people around him are like telling him to keep drinking because that might help his playing, but he just keeps going downhill. It took him two, three days to die, died of poisoning. Wow. So the guy, the owner poisoned him. They followed the trail, but nothing, nobody faced charges. Nobody went to jail. Yeah. I mean, what, this is still in the early 1900s. There's right. no way that the cops are going to care about no matter how famous he is, no, a dead black man. That's just the the state of things at the time. And a Jew too. Fucking, I mean, it's yeah. known for violence. Exactly. So, and he reaped what he sowed. Yeah. Honestly. So, with that in mind, much like other members of the infamous club of the dead at twenty seven years old, Robert's influence had a greater impact after his death. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, listen to this. This is so creepy, you guys. Like, right out of the grave he reaches, right? So six months after his death, he was given a spotlight solar performance at frickin' Carnegie Hall. Wow. Okay? In this guy named John Hammond's concert that's entitled From Spirituals to Swing. And he performed via the Victrola. Yes. So the curtains oh. open. No, and there's a picture of it on YouTube. There's a, well, on the internet, there's the curtains open and there's a spotlight literally on this Victrola and nothing else. Okay. That's Carnegie crazy. Hall. Right. And he plays the, 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 you know, whatever, how many songs it's on one side and yeah. the other. And people go crazy. They've never heard anything like this before. Yeah. Now, mind you, you and Yai and everybody listening are used to that. Dun, 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 or that. Bam, 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 bam. No. Nobody yeah. had heard that previous to this. Okay. So outside they go, of jukes and outside right. of that culture. Exactly. So they go nuts, right? So, um, and and the rest of the concert, ironically, uh, depicts the common themes that existed in African American music from its origins in Africa through gospel, through gospel and the blues, Dixieland, and eventually sprint, uh, swing. But the original, like the beginning of all of that, is the blues, and that's what Hammond was trying to get to, and he went looking for Robert. Mm-hmm. because he heard this recording and he went looking for him, but realized Robert was dead. So that was his answer to show Robert off. Right. Okay. So Hammond, by the way, was instrumental in sparking <laughs> numerous musical careers, which include Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Benny Goodwin, Charles Christian, Billy Holiday, Count Basie, freaking Aretha Franklin, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and many, many more. I mean, like, the cornucopia of uh, influence this man had, you know, is just tremendous. Yeah, massive. Yeah. So here's the real question. Did Robert really sell his soul to the devil? Well, there's there's no empirical evidence to support that he ever said that he did. Okay? Okay. Okay. The crossroads thing comes from interviews with Delta Juke owner, who I just mentioned, uh, Sun House, 
who commented to somebody way after the fact that Robert must have sold his soul to the devil because he left the Delta, disappeared for a couple of years, and later came back and played circles around everybody, right? So Son, uh, excuse me, Son said offhand, he must have sold his soul to the devil to be able to do that. Okay, this is the same guy who said, hey, Robert, why are you bothering everybody yeah, with that yeah, scratching, right? Totally. Right, so while it's true that he did practice in graveyards, many musicians at the time did, especially in the South where there was ever the threat of violence for even the slightest remark, you know, misspoke or yeah. irritation, you know? Well, he might not have sold his soul to the devil, but I mean, between playing in graveyards yeah. and <laughs> and uh, somehow rising from the dead to play a solo six months after he died, I Hello? mean, that's that's spooky enough for me. So, yeah. so I get and it. And that was Halloween, I mm-hmm. thought. Yeah, totally. How that's ironic, very cool. you guys. That's yeah. crazy. Um, so we just talked a lot about Robert Johnson and yeah. not a whole lot about weed. Yeah. Uh, so we decided to get into some artists and songs from mm-hmm. the time in the genre uh, that really did get into yeah. the weed side of things. So And um, weed's been with that genre since the inception, it totally, seems like. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so here's a few of our top <laughs> songs. Uh, first of all... They're uh, all body, by Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Lucille Bogan's I love her Hot Hound Blues Yeah she sings about a guy Who's like Like a loser She was She had ex- Sexually explicit songs And she talks about this guy He's like Can't make the rent But he's always eating her food And always has money For booze and, and pot <laughs> Yeah Let's hear a bit of that You come home Every day Looking for your stew and beans. You come home every day looking for your stew and beans. And you have got more noise than any pot hound I've ever seen. The next song that we're going to talk about, uh, the some of the most famous ones, actually, mm. uh, we have Champagne and Reefer <laughs> by Mutter, Muddy Waters. Yeah, bring me champagne when I'm thirsty. Bring me Reefer when I want to get high. And then we also have Let's Go Get Stoned by Ray Charles. Let's! And then I'm going to call my buddy on the telephone and say, Now those are some of our top ones. You also have We Gonna Get High Together by yeah. Tampa Red and the Chicago Five. Weed Head Woman by yeah. Champion da- Jack Dupree, yeah. and many more. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a whole compilation called Reefer Blues, yeah. vintage songs about marijuana. Volumes one, two, and three. Uh, Thank three you very volumes. much. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. Ah, uh, great tunes. Yeah. Now we need to talk about Muddy Waters. Because Muddy Waters is largely responsible for the revival of the Delta Blues and uh, the artist Robert Johnson and his music. And so Muddy's influence on the Stones and Eric Clampton and other guitar, guitar greats. I mean, he is the originator of the Chicago Blues. Oh, yeah. So 
Muddy first recorded for the Library of Congress some three years after Johnson's uh, death. He had already fallen under the spiritual spell, uh, quote unquote, um, during when he was under the tutelage of, again, Sun House. Wow, How ironic the full owner. circle. Wow. Right, the Duke owner, right? Waters picked up Johnson traits, which he brought with him, like I said, to Chicago. Again, full circle. Just crazy, right? Yeah. Right? So then, then we found, just was, I had no idea about this. Yeah. That the great blue, blind blues uh, legend Ray Charles first discovered marijuana uh, when he was in Seattle, when he started gigging around there at the age of 18. He landed a number one R&B hit called Let's Go Get Stoned. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one we were listening to earlier. It's it's freaking great. I mean, really a number one R&B? That's just so great. Yeah. So I wonder um, what year that was, too. Oh, I what year? Put that yeah. In. We'll look that up and get back yeah, to you yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he described his first experience smoking weed in his autobiography. Nick? It seemed all right to me. I liked the taste. I liked the mellow effect it had on my body and mind. Playing behind grass wasn't bad. I could really feel the groove of the music. And I thought it added to love making. <laughs> it's so great. I thought it acted like an aphrodisiac. <laughs> so like everyone else, I smoked it. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Charles also found his way into heroin, unfortunately. Mm. But he was adamant in his autobiography that uh, <laughs> marijuana is not a gateway drug. I love this. He Go wrote, ahead. it's bullshit that grass leads to heroin. Yeah. Adding, I've always liked the counter arguments which show you that milk leads to heroin since all addicts <laughs> at one time drank milk. Fair point. Mother's milk. It's Fair so point. Not a gateway drug. So says Ray Charles. <laughs> yeah. And... You know, 90% of, 99% of experts. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And now for the, I mean, really. So now for the real scary ongoing horror show franchise portion of the program. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if y'all have been listening to the show for a while, you know, we've talked about this kind of stuff a lot. But, you know, authorities use the connection of cannabis and black culture to demonize Mm. both. Uh Uh, Politicians across the political divide spent much of the 20th century using marijuana as a means of dividing America Mm -hmm. by painting the drug as a scourge from the south of the border uh, to a jazz drug to the corrupt intoxicant of choice for beatniks and hippies mm-hmm. marijuana as a drug and the laws sought to control it played on some of america's worst tendencies yep. around race Absolutely. ethnicity civil de- disobedience and otherness sing it an article published in detective world in 1947 mm-hmm. and written by judge carl f diefenbach uh, built on the assassin theme and began to associate the plant with everything foreign again. and strange to the american mind mm-hmm. The notable use of the anglicized spelling variation with H, H. replacing J in the word marijuana mm-hmm. was very likely a deliberate choice to Absolutely. make the plant sound more un-American and menacing. Sure. Don't call it cannabis. Yeah. Uh, hinting that hashish is related to the Arabic word assassin, which we've mm-hmm. talked about before. Totally. The article depicts the plant as a... St- in fact, I think that we talked about that on our... No, yeah, we did. The Halloween last episode. episode. That's so that funny. last year! Yay! Ooh. Full circle. <laughs> 
Anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the article depicts the plant as a snake that originated in the Orient and traveled through Mexico, then wound itself in a serpentine Ooh. fashion through the social world of American life, determined to destroy not just the <laughs> mind, but also our collective culture. In this reprehensible but masterly example of period yeah. propaganda, even the poet Homer is <laughs> evoked to denounce the deadly plant which had apparently invested the ancient Persians with their devilish power. This article goes on to indulge in blatantly racist yep. insinuations associating reefers with jazz halls and, and juke, juke joints. joints. Yeah, which is not anything that we haven't covered yet, Hello. but it's just it's such a such a over and over and over and over yep, again. Yep, 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 it doesn't yep. matter at what point you're talking about cannabis and the way that it's the propaganda against it's it's always used, it's always demonized. It's always demonized and yeah. it always uses minority cultures to demonize yeah, it. Again, it's juke disgusting. joints. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. totally disgusting. Because as we have spoken before, there were very social elite social clubs in New York at the turn of the century where these people were indulging in hashish mm-hmm. and marijuana. You know, and yeah. at a very elite environment. Yeah. So it, yeah. So yeah. that's uh, I mean, from top to bottom, some really cool influences, some really interesting uh, stories, mm-hmm. some spooky guitar-related yeah. uh, and devil's music and always devil's music. going to be the devil's music, mm-hmm. which right now is sounds badass, but no. unfortunately, it was it has Demonized. been used over yeah. and over again and to to just really keep the people. Down. Yeah, and what I thought was fascinating too, Nick, is when we were doing this research and as subsequent research that we have done before, is that, or that it's always people getting together and writhing in music and these ecclesiastic or mm-hmm. you know yeah. settings, mm-hmm. but it's togetherness. Yeah. Right, and then that's somehow made bad. Yeah, okay. exactly. It's just it's it's made foreign and non-understandable because these rigid white Puritans mm. can't understand what. Yeah, what I mean, it's mostly rigid white yeah. Puritans <laughs> uh, can't understand what it's like to enjoy let's yourself, so they have to punish everybody else. Horrible context in which yeah. it exists. So we put this episode in the Culture Pot series, but as you can see, it relates to prohibition classification and even the. Uh, the commodification of cannabis. Yeah. The battle of music and cannabis versus politicians and Puritans has been abound since the days of Robert Johnson, uh, Johnson, excuse me, and before, and is still an ongoing, as we just spoke about. Mm-hmm. So next up in the Culture Pot series, Sound of Smoke. It's going to be all that jazz. Yeah, we're going to be talking jazz because there is a large influence there. I mean, from it being called jazz cigarettes and all yes. of that, but this is going to be a really fun one, and we're going to play some cool jazz hits for and you And you well. are not going to believe some of the people that actually were instrumental in smuggling marijuana into this yeah. country. Yeah, seriously. But with freedom comes movement, and with movement comes exchange of commodities. <laughs> And thank you for listening to Cannabis Nation. We hope this has helped shed light on your most burning questions and dankest desires. Come check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook or at Cannabis Nation Podcast. We might be a little ghosty there. I'm Susan. <laughs> I'm Nick. <laughs> Ending on a high. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo.
love the ghosty <laughs> freaking Halloween and also reference to our, our yes. vacant social media. 